0: women like crazy you guys are out there basically naked performing your performers your stars your worldwide they camping out at hotels waiting for you how crazy did it get when you were single
1: well i've been married four times <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing why are you in your mom's basement this is a losing proposition, side, like, come on, stop. So, you know, you'd have to kind of ignore the doubt that would be coming from well-meaning people to proceed ahead on a path that you personally believe in. I went and I spoke to them and they essentially told me, just go back to your desk and do your job, just sell, just go back to your cubicle. So I thought to myself, no, I don't want to go back to my cubicle. There's something here. Like, I really think there's something here. Hi, everyone. My name is Saad Juman. I am in Oakville, Ontario, Canada. I'm 42 years old. And the company that I ran for 17 and a half years, which I sold last year, was called Policy Medical. And it was a healthcare software tech company that was essentially a SaaS software company. And we built solutions for hospitals and chains of
0: hospitals. How do you end up in Oakville, Ontario?
1: My wife, my kids, and I, we moved here about a year ago. We were looking for a place for our kids to kind of be rooted in. And we had a couple of criteria we were looking for. So Oakville seemed to kind of hit the mark. And I'm born and raised in the greater Toronto area. So Oakville is just another suburb of Toronto.
0: Okay, yeah. So just south of it, pretty close to New York, right?
1: Yeah, it's on the way to Niagara Falls.
0: Yeah, I'll just bring that up on the map. Because I always just find it interesting why people live where they live. So you said you basically grew up in that area?
1: I grew up in the rougher part of Toronto, the eastern side of Toronto, and then we were living for a while in the northern part, like the northern suburb of Toronto, but we were looking for different criteria for the kids. We wanted a kind of a place where her and I grew up in, a walking community where the kids could walk or ride their bikes to school you need to get some groceries, you can walk over there, all the different activities that the kids might be into, like hockey or basketball or whatever, it would be pretty close by. So where we were living before, everything was a bit of a drive to get to everywhere. So we wanted a bit more of a walkable community.
0: And so you said you created a company called Policy Medical? Yes. Yeah. So can you give us a little bit more of a rundown on that? You said you sold it about a year ago? Yeah, I did. Okay. We did. Just tell us a little bit more about that company, and then we can talk about how you actually ended up growing this company and your adventure since you sold it. Because again, I think that's what a lot of people strive to do in their business eventually. Obviously, you got to sell it or else it's going to go by the wayside. So I think it'd be very interesting to kind of hear your story even a year out after you sold your business.
1: Sure. So where'd you like me to start in terms of how it
0: started, what I'm doing now? Let's just talk about what Policy Medical did or does, and then we'll talk about how you got started, if you don't mind.
1: Okay. So for context, I'm a year removed from the business, so I have nothing to do with the business currently, just as a disclaimer. So all of my comments are related to when I was running the company for about 17 and a half years. So what the company did, what Paulist Medical did, it was a healthcare compliance software company. So it had a suite of products. So the flagship product was a product that managed a lot of non-clinical documents inside of the hospital setting. So essentially, it managed the policies and procedures. Those are documents that tell doctors, nurses, surgeons, as other clinicians what they have to do. So for example, if somebody needed to disinfect a scalpel after surgery, there's a policy and a procedure of how to do that correctly. And there are hundreds or maybe even thousands of these documents at hospitals. So they have to manage it correctly and have to make sure that they follow guidelines and standards that are put out by different regulators and inspectors that come in and check up on the hospitals. So the consequences for not managing those documents properly are quite serious for hospitals. That's what created the need for Policy Medical's first product. And then there were a suite of other products that bolted on along the way over the years to serve the needs of the
0: same client that was using it. And so, did you grow up wanting to do this? No, no, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, because it's always interesting how people start these companies because I wouldn't think that you would.
1: Yeah, I mean, I didn't specifically as a little boy just lay there in my room thinking, one day I want to be a healthcare compliance software CEO, <laughs> right? right? My first passion in life was the game of basketball. So, you know, I thought for sure I was going to be the next Michael Jordan until I realized I stopped growing in like the 10th or 11th grade and that's just not going to happen. So it's one of those things that sort of evolved. However, that company, Policy Medical, for me personally, it was rooted in a specific calling, in a specific mission, if you will, that came from inside of me to serve and have an impact on people's health. So that's the root of the company.
0: Yeah. I think there's always like an angle of why something started. Like you said, you weren't a little boy dreaming about this, but you wanting to help people and kind of finding this was a niche that you could do that, I guess, ended up working out. So now that we got a little bit of a broad view of policy medical, how about we bring it back to when you actually got started and we'll just take it from there.
1: Okay. So how it started was really a period of time just before it started. I was in a phase of kind of searching myself. I was in my twenties. A lot of my friends had software, sales related jobs and other jobs in sort of the corporate world. And I was doing some of that, but it just wasn't sitting well with me. I felt like there was something else I was supposed to be doing, but I just really couldn't put my finger on it. So what I ended up doing was I ended up taking a few months of space where I would take these different spells, spells or phases, if you will, of solitude, just kind of sitting quietly by myself, Trying to listen to what the voice inside of me might be telling me in terms of what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. Because what I didn't want to do is just get a job to acquire some money and just be essentially pushing paper around a corporation just to collect a paycheck every other Friday. So, after a few months of kind of soul searching and sitting there quietly with myself, an idea started popping up inside of me. And it was health. It was, hey, health. Perhaps you should be impacting people's health. And that was a really strong kind of message that kept on coming up over and over and over again. So then I thought, okay, let me be really tuned in to potential opportunities that might be coming along that have to do with health. And then some stuff started. I mean, at that time, I was working for a tech company that was sort of unrelated. It was in telecom, so it had nothing to do with health. But then in the area that I was working in geographically, which was Ottawa, Ontario, a lot of people started losing their jobs because telecom started going through some troubles in that particular region. So I was one of them. So we ended up getting laid off. I came back from Ottawa to Toronto, where I'm from, trying to figure out what I have to do. And I got hired as a tech recruiter. So somebody that tries to find full jobs. Again, unrelated to healthcare. But then that company ended up laying off a bunch of people, and I was one of them. And then that's where I started to see the sign. So a buddy of mine called me and said, hey, you know what? I'm recruiting for this startup, and they sell a solution to hospitals. So I thought, ooh, hospitals. This has to do with health. So I said, I'll take it. I'll go for the interview. I went for the interview. I got hired. So I was a sales guy at this particular company in a suburb of Toronto selling their solution. Now, within a few months there, I started to come across a problem and an opportunity, which was one and the same. So when I was selling to a prospect, a potential customer, they would tell me, uh, you know what? We don't really want this particular solution that you have. We want this other thing. So the solution that I was selling, it was a generic hospital intranet, which is an internal website. And the hospital would post different things on this intranet. And again, this is back in the early 2000s yeah early 2000s like late 90s early 2000s that era right so things are much more simplistic
0: and you were in your mid-20s at this point too you say yeah okay cool
1: early 20s actually right
0: okay so they didn't really find the solution
1: very useful that we were initially trying to sell because they would purchase it and they would be able to do things like post their cafeteria menu on there very simple things but they were looking for something else to manage these policies and procedures so whenever I would sell the solution The engineers would find me at lunch or over coffee breaks or whatnot and say, hey, we're really stressed out. And I'd say, why are you stressed out? They're like, well, the solution that you're selling, we're trying to implement it and deploy it at the hospitals. But they're a little bit upset because they're looking for something else. And they would tell me that something else was exactly the same thing that the customer was telling me in the sales process. So then I had an aha moment. Ah, okay. Well, what we're selling kind of sucks. So why don't I just go tell the CEO and the people that run the company that we should stop building this thing that we're building and just build something else? I'm thinking about it very, very simplistically. So I did that. I went and I spoke to them and they essentially told me, just go back to your desk and do your job. Just sell. Just go back to your cubicle. So I thought to myself, no, I don't want to go back to my cubicle. There's something here. Like, I really think there's something here. Big problem was, is I'm a sales guy and I don't know how to program or code or anything like that. So I ended up taking the head engineer out for lunch at a little food court at a mall. And I said, hey, I've got this great idea. Why don't we build this product? And he said, well, how are we going to do that? We don't have any resources. Neither of us even knew how to resign. I said, don't worry about it. I'll write a resignation letter. I'll Google it. I'll write a resignation letter for both of us. So I ended up doing that. I wrote a resignation letters. I just swapped out his name for my name. So he would have one. And he said, well, where are we going to work? And I said, you know, I've got this perfect office that I know of. It's 24-7 access. It's got catering. It's got a gym in there. It's got a desk, everything else. He's like, oh, man. He's like, where is this place, right? Because Toronto at that time, right now, it's a pretty booming tech city. But back then, there was nothing. So he wanted to know, where's this cool office? I said, it's my mom's basement. I said, my old weight bench is there. We can lift weights. I still got my old desk in there. She'll cook for us and we can start building the company from there. So that's what we ended up doing. We ended up resigning the very next day. We showed up at my mom's house and we started working in the basement. That's how the company started.
0: And so literally the next day after you came up with the idea, y'all decided to do this? Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't seem like a lot of, I mean, maybe were you still ticked off that the guys wouldn't even listen to you up top as far as the company you are working for?
1: Not really. I just thought, you know what, let's do this because we're in our early-ish to mid-20s. Our burn rate in life was very, very low. If I compare it to myself now, I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I didn't have anything. I didn't even have rent at that time. I mean, all I was paying for was gas money for my little car and my cell phone bill. I thought to myself, what do I have to lose here?
0: Right. And so how big was the company that you resigned from? And then obviously it was just the two of y'all when you got started. I'll get more into that detail. But just to kind of figure out the differences, like your friend brought up some good thoughts. I would think that we don't have any infrastructure. We're not that big. So tell us about the size of the company that you were with versus obviously y'all starting your own.
1: Yeah, let me think back because that's some years ago. It was small. It would be considered a small company. There couldn't have been more than 20 people working at that particular company, all in one office, one little office. And there was one primary investor. Actually, after we started the company, they were very upset that we started a company and they accused us of trying to compete with them. They later realized that we weren't competing with them at all. All right. And then we all ended up doing our own thing. But the company was really small and it was funded by one angel investor, one elderly gentleman from, I think, Cincinnati, Ohio, that he had made. His money selling cookies. He had this cookie empire. And back then, he just wanted to get into the web or the net, right? So that's why he was investing in this company.
0: And so when you guys started off and when you resigned, basically you came up with this the next day. Obviously, you're smart to think about your overhead getting started and stuff, but did you have any money saved up or what was your game plan going into the very next day to your mom's basement?
1: Game plan was to devote all of our time to building an initial product that we could demo and start selling. And that was the initial plan. Now, along the way, we realized, oh, okay, we might need some money to survive here. We were really, really scrappy. My co-founder, who I bought out only a few years into the business and he transitioned out and I ended up growing the business myself. But he had a carpet cleaning franchise, I remember. So he would say, hey, you know what? Do you want to come along with me in the nighttime? I've got these contracts to carpet clean these banks. So I would say, sure, I'd go help him, and we get paid and we split the money. We just really did like, odd and odds and end jobs in a way, just so we can survive as we were working and building the company. But I would say less than a year into us starting the company, that very next day after leaving our place of employment, we had our very first check. So it was like nine or 10 months in, we had our very first purchase order and check that came. It's a wild story in terms of how we came up with the price for that. But I remember the check that came, it was for 9,995 US dollars. For Canadians, back then, that's like $15,000, right, with the conversion. So when we got that check, we looked at each other and we're like, holy smokes, we are rich. Look at this, 5,000 US for you, 5,000 US for me, we've made
0: it. Do you remember when you started your small business? It was no small feat. It took a lot of late nights, early mornings, and the occasional all-nighter. Bottom line, you've been insanely busy ever since. So why not make things a little bit easier? Well, our friends at FreshBooks have the solution. FreshBooks invoicing and accounting software is designed specifically for small business owners. It's simple, intuitive, and keeps you more organized than a dusty shoebox filled with crumbled receipts. Create and send professional-looking invoices in 30 seconds. And then get them paid two times faster with automated online payments. File expenses even quicker and keep them perfectly organized for tax time. And the best part, FreshBooks grows alongside your business. So you'll always have the tools you need when you need them without ever having to learn the ins and outs of accounting. So join the 24 million people who've used FreshBooks. Try it free for 30 days. No catch and no credit card required. Go to FreshBooks.com forward slash MI and enter Millionaire Interviews and the How Did You Hear About Us section to get started. That's freshbooks.com forward slash mi. And for more information about FreshBooks, you can go check out episode 141 where I interviewed the founder, Mike McDermott. Did you know that your support through Patreon helps us put together this little podcast for you each and every week? For only a few bucks a month, you help us pay for guest research awesome conversations like the one you're listening to right now and last but not least the audio production of each individual episode well if you want to help us keep bringing you these episodes then we'd love your support via patreon plus as a bonus for supporting us on patreon you'll receive a whole bunch of cool stuff like secret podcast episodes that are only available to patreon members you'll get a direct zoom call with me where we can talk about your business and a personal shout out of your name on a future episode and plus so much more. So if you want to join the inner circle of our podcasts, then please help support us on Patreon. Just go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon or check the link in your episode description below. Can you reemphasize the differences though as well that you said your old company was thinking about suing you? Again, just walk through as simply as you can, like what they did versus what your thought process was on the software that you were going to create for these medical places.
1: Sure, they were selling a generic intranet, like a open intranet where you can just post stuff on there. And then what we ended up building was a specific software application where hospitals would only load up their existing policies and procedures. So they're in Microsoft Word that they'd already created, and they'd be able to search it and find it and index it and get notifications of when they had to update it and then be able to update it. So it was really geared towards one particular document, so a document management solution, where theirs was a generic just intranet solution to post hospital announcements and cafeteria menus and things that are going on in the hospital.
0: Okay. So y'all were able to create that pretty quickly?
1: Yeah, we were able to create it, I guess, within a few months. And people always ask me, how did you know what to create?
0: How did you know what to create?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, what we did, I guess, in a bit more of a sophisticated way, up until I left the company, which was listen to the customer. We would ask the potential customers what they wanted. They would tell us. At times, they would send us these Excel spreadsheets with a list of all of the things they wanted, and we would simply build it. It was as simple as that. And back then, you know, SEO and pay per click and all this other stuff that would drive traffic to your website wasn't as developed as it is now. So I would be the one making 150 to maybe 225 calls a day to different hospitals, just cold calling and gathering information, giving it to my co-founder who was the engineer and he'd be the one building it.
0: So would you actually be calling or I feel like you'd have more success if you actually even went in there versus I guess you're still early 2000. So people are picking up the phone versus now, it seems no one really does. We had to call
1: again. We're in Canada. So snow. Well, not even the snow. The first thought we had was let's sell this to Canadian hospitals. Even after a month or two, after I had kind of honed the pitch on the phone for my cold calling, I was coming up completely blank calling Canadian hospitals, they were not interested at all, even if they were kind of interested. They just didn't have the money because the funding here is very different because it's all public. So we thought, okay, we've got a losing idea here. It's just not going to happen. But serendipitously, right around that time, Google had really started their AdWords product and their pay-per-click stuff. For advertising. So I was playing around with that on our website. And then traffic started coming to our website from US hospitals. So then I started having a couple of conversations with US hospitals and the conversations were different. They really got what we're trying to do. And I learned that there was a big need for why they needed a specific product. So then I started gearing 100% of my cold calling efforts to US hospitals. And I would start super early in the morning calling the East Coast. Then I would end in the evening, East Coast time, but end of day, West Coast time in California, just calling hospitals, calling hospitals nonstop. And it worked.
0: Yeah. And just make sure everyone's on the same page because we got a worldwide audience too. It's a private healthcare system in the US versus the public in Canada. So it was hard for you to sell to them, you're saying, versus these private hospitals that want to be more efficient and the bottom line actually matters, right? You got it. Yeah. So, well, I guess kind of where you left off was all these cold calls. I mean, what was that like? Because I mean, were you doing that before in your old job? I guess you're actually kind of recruiting for a little while, right? Before you started doing this?
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, that was easy because I had lots of experience doing that. I know these days, especially younger entrepreneurs, they feel very daunted about putting in a cold call, right? Everybody tries to go through everything else other than cold calling. And I do acknowledge that cold calling over the years became less and less of an emphasis in a big way, even towards the end of selling our Company, the majority of the pipeline, the sales pipeline, those sales opportunities that would come in did not come from cold calling in the last quarter of the company, you know, the last six years or so. It all came from inbound content marketing strategy, people coming to our website, consuming the right content, submitting demo requests, those types of things. So those are really, really warm leads. But in the early days, you had to pick up the phone and call, it was the only way. And you had to go through lots and lots and lots of rejection.
0: Right. It's not even cold calls today. I know some people are just scared of sending a cold email. I'm like, dude, what the hell are you scared about? Is it email versus like actually calling and having to deal with maybe more rejection and going through people? I guess over the years, it became less and less because you found more efficient routes using Google AdWords and using SEO, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you've got to always be a student of what's going on. So cold calling worked. But then if I contrast those early five years, if you say cold calling with the last five years of a 17 and a half year journey, cold calling became almost non-existent. I mean, our salespeople would probably spend 5% of their time cold calling at the end. But the reason is they were so busy with leads coming in from our marketing department of, hey, All these hospitals contacted us. They want to schedule demos of the software, call them back. So obviously, that's a way better chance of getting a sale than cold calling.
0: Right. And it's just always noticing like what's working. And yeah, luckily you figured something else where you're getting these warm leads for these people where they don't even have time to do cold calls. So that's kind of the best thing, but over time, obviously, but getting started in any business, you have to go cold anything, whether it's cold calls or cold emails, because you need to get your name out there. And then again, as you end up doing a good job and having good software, it sounded like more and more people wanted to find it and you were able to find different marketing avenues for people to find you.
1: Yeah, you can view it as cult, or you can view it as also a belief in yourself. Because even when I was starting the company, forget going out and getting rejected by clients, but friends or even certain family members, they would, in a nice, kind way, tell me, what are you doing? Why are you in your mom's basement? You could totally get a job paying X. This is a losing proposition side, like, come on, stop. So, you know, you'd have to kind of ignore the doubt that would be coming from well-meaning people to proceed ahead on a path that you
0: personally believe in. And you said uh, basically nine months in, you got your first big paycheck, which was, again, how much?
1: $9,995. I'll tell you how we came up with that because I was on the phone with all these hospitals, and we were getting close to getting a sale each time after I had honed and figured out how to pitch the software. And my co-founder would get annoyed with me because he's sitting right next to me as I'm doing these sales pitches and demos. And people would ask me, hey, does the software do X, Y, and Z? And in those early days, I would usually say, yeah, it does. And he would give me this look. No, it doesn't. But I'd get off the phone and I'd say, build it, build
0: it now. Yeah, make it happen.
1: Yeah, but truth be told, in, I learned very quick that that's not the right way to do things. So the last half-life of the company, we never did stuff like that. We would honestly tell people, no, we don't do that. We can't do that. But for the pricing, I remember there was a hospital in Plattsburgh, New York. That was our very first client. And I believe it's still a client to date for the company. And they were asking us for a reference and we didn't have any references. So I decided to tell them the truth. I said, look, we don't have any references. We're just starting up. We would love for you to be our first reference. And because I told the CIO, the chief information officer, the truth, She said, okay, I'll be your reference. But what are you going to do for me with the price? So even the phone I was using, there was no mute button. I had to cover the receiver. And I turned to my co-founder and I said, pricing. We never thought about what to price this thing. What do we price it? He said, I don't know, pick something. So I went back on the phone and I said, you know, I think I might get approval. Again, I never told him I was the CEO of the founder. I'd always tell him I was like the VP they couldn't know that I was in my mom's basement. And there was only two guys sitting down here selling to them in Canada. So I said, I think I can come back and get approval for $9,995. She said in the first year, and I said, yeah. And she said, what about ongoing? And I said, $1,200 every year after that. She said, okay, if you can get approval for that, we have a deal. Now, that got us our first deal. We were super happy. We followed that pricing for any customer that came along for the I believe the next two years, regardless of their size, we were happy. But that decision years later almost killed us because of us undercutting ourselves with that initial price.
0: And so the pricing you just kind of made up based on maybe your old company where y'all charging something similar, like the one that you used to work for?
1: To be honest, I pulled out of thin air, Yeah, but the model was based on how software was priced at that time. It was a this perpetual software licensing model, which is, you, the customer pays a large fee upfront and then they pay somewhere between 15 to 22% a year for what they call the maintenance fee. So that's how the $1,200 came up because it was a percentage of what I told her.
0: Okay. And so congrats on getting your first sale there, obviously. Do you want to fast forward a couple of years? I guess what you said happened is eventually your co-founder left and that this pricing model might've hurt you in the long run, at least initially, or if there's any other thing that we should know about here in the early years. I think it's important for anybody starting up,
1: no journey happens by yourself. So people might look at a founder or the CEO, let's say in my little case that, oh, so-and-so exited and he did a great job, but that's not true. I mean, any success is a collection of all the people that helped along the way, even when the success happens, all the people that are no longer there that contributed all the way along. So without my co-founder in those early days, like this never would have happened even though he was only around for, I think, somewhere between five to seven years. But when it was time to leave, one lesson learned, hopefully for both of us, is when you start a company and you're starting it with more than yourself, you should take some time to write down on a piece of paper some kind of agreement between each other in terms of what your roles and responsibilities are. And if you were to disentangle and leave each other, How that actually looks. It'll just make it a lot easier because when it was time for us to part ways, it became tense for a period of time. And it almost felt like this really big, bad breakup. But then we were able to figure it out in the end without too much drama, but we could have saved ourselves at least a year of our lives of going back and forth over this. If we had taken the time in retrospect to come up with a partnership agreement or a shareholders agreement or something like that. But that was a big milestone in terms of him moving on and then me having the company all by myself.
0: And so when he left, that's fast forward, like five or seven years. So we're talking about 2009 at this point? Yes. So if we jump to that part in the story, I mean, how big is the company? Is it still just the two of y'all?
1: So at that point, it was gone. So it was me, one other engineer, and I think at that point, a young sales guy. And that was it. There was just three of us at that point. Okay. In a shared office space.
0: Yeah. So tell us what you grew to as far as revenues. And I guess we know employees, it sounds like there's three of y'all total.
1: Yeah. So we ended up growing steadily. So one of the things that I decided that we had to do right around that point, I continued to run the company for another year or so. But then I quickly realized that this company is really a lifestyle company. It was providing enough income for salaries for all of us, and then giving me a little bit of a life at that point, I was married and we had our first few children. But that's not why I got into that business in the first place. I didn't get into it to just provide for me and my family. I had gotten into it to try to make a bigger impact in health and people's health. And I wanted to have that bigger impact. And it just wasn't happening with the company. It was too small. So then I went through a process of gut checking to see if I still wanted to stay with the company. Once I decided I did, then I went through a phase of rebuilding and restarting the company from a phase where it was almost nearing bankruptcy because we were teeter-tottering in terms of paying our bills, paying everybody's salary, and then hoping that more money would come in from the hospitals and just this really nervous cycle of just enough money coming in and out. So then I went through a process between that point to the exit, which lasted about six or seven years, to relaunch, restart the company from that point to the successful exit that we
0: actually had. I'm just trying to feel like it seemed like everything was going well, but I guess apparently you were just kind of break even based on y'all paying yourself salaries and whatnot over the first seven or eight years?
1: Yes, it was break even. We were continuing to pick up more and more clients. But again, that pricing model that we had chosen all those years ago, it started to hurt us because the first year of a customer was great. We'd get a little larger sum. But then we we're only getting approximately $1,200 a year per customer, which is not enough money to scale and grow a company. So we went through about a five-phase approach to relaunch the company and rebuild it into what it ended up becoming.
0: Yeah. So tell us about, again, because you initially said something about this pricing model, and I think we can all understand if you're only getting 1200 bucks per customer after the initial year and you've got three or four staff members, then obviously you need a lot more clients. And it sounds like that was an issue. So tell us this pricing structure, how it ended up changing and how are you able to change the people who you're under contract with initially? Because that has to be an issue as well.
1: Yeah. So the first thing that we ended up doing is, you know, we're a product company. Right. So I looked at the product and the feedback I got from different mentors in my life was the product wasn't anything that special. So I decided, okay, we need to rebuild the product because just updating it or upgrading it wasn't enough. At that point, Amazon and Amazon web services, which is now very popular was starting up. So we decided to, okay, let's go cloud based. Let's take this to the cloud and we had to rebuild the product. So technologically it was really, really tough because We were installing our software in an old school way, which was we would install it at every single hospital that was using it. It was physically there, installed there. So we had to rebuild the product. After we rebuilt it, that took about a year, year and a half to do. Then we had to migrate everybody from the version they were using to the cloud, which was a gargantuan task that was really, really, really difficult. What helped us was we didn't have that many customers at that time compared to what we ended up with. How many? We only had maybe two, 300 customers. By the time we sold the company last year, we had thousands of customers. But I will say that studying this and helping to guide and mentor other companies through this, some companies fail and go bankrupt when they try to do that migration with too many customers. Because the technological migration is one issue, but Austin, you hit on something really important before in one of your questions to me. The contractual migration, Pricing-wise, was another big thing, because not only were we migrating them to a new platform, we were also going to them and saying, ooh, by the way, we also kind of need you to sign a new contract. And in this contract, we're asking you to pay, instead of $1,200 per year, we're going to need you to pay 10000 or we're going to need you to pay 30000 depending on the size of the organization. And also, by the way, in that contract, I know you paid us year to year. You weren't locked into it, but now we're going to lock you in for at least 36 months at a time. So that was, boy, was that a journey and a process migrating all those clients.
0: Yeah. I mean, it seemed like it'd be tough as hell, right? Not only do the technology, but then the awkward turtle in the room of doing that part. No one wants to pay more, especially when you got them locked in there in the beginning. But obviously, it's something you have to do to survive. So also, I'm just imagining that you're kind of break even again over those first seven or eight years. And then you took a year to develop this technology to put them on the new platform, which was going to cost more for them. Did you have to take out a loan or anything in order to do that technology to build this new thing? Because I don't know if your guys who were you had on salary, if they were just helping you originally with the old system, if you had to stop, make sure that they stopped doing that and then focus on making this new software. Because, again, I didn't know if you had any saved up money from it because it sounded, again, like you didn't have too much money saved up.
1: Great question. So no, we didn't take out any loans. The entire journey was bootstrapped. So we never had any outside investors. But what I ended up doing... So you remember, I bought out my co-founder. So I had 100% of the company. Then I quickly realized that 100% of nothing gets you nothing. I started going to Silicon Valley, which was at that time, the sort of the epicenter of software. And I started making different contacts. And what I ended up deciding to do was bringing in different people into the company. So there were two amazing engineers who actually pitched and told me like, look, we can help you rebuild this product. However, we've got full-time jobs, but we want a certain amount of equity in the company. If you agree to that, we're going to help you start rebuilding it. So I ended up doing that. I will say that they worked hard. They worked full-time, even though they had full-time jobs overnight. So they got us that initial version. And then even when we started selling more, a little bit, a little bit more, and we started affording to be able to hire other engineers, they were the guys out in uh, Mountain View, California, that would train and guide and make sure that maybe some of the more junior engineers we were bringing on knew what they were doing. Because the language we were programming in at that time was very, very advanced. So anywhere outside of Silicon Valley at that time, no one really knew that language. So we had to train people that were coming on board in Toronto how to program in that particular
0: language. What was the language? It was called Groovy on Grails. Okay. And so also, it's important that you brought up is that you saw the writing on the wall, right, with your business model. If the stuff wasn't in the cloud, more people were going to the cloud. If you had this old software where you weren't charging Mm enough, unless you get somebody to help you build some new technology, and basically this way they can do it for free, quote unquote, although they'll take some equity, it's still better than nothing. You didn't have to get a loan like we were talking about or come up with extra money. It's kind of a best case scenario. It's like, okay, I don't have to come out with any money on my pocket, less risk to me. And then if these guys help me, then we're all going to succeed together.
1: Exactly. And you know what? I mean, that was my first taste in giving away some equity so that over the years, I brought in a few more people and parted with some more equity. And then I even created this employee stock option program where I would give for a very nominal price shares to certain key employees to kind of incent them along the way to act and work as owners, which worked out for them because when the company was sold, it was made a great return.
0: And so these guys, you said within a year, they were able to come up with something. They were working in Silicon Valley still while you were in Toronto, putting together the new software.
1: It was a crazy and beautiful time because they were working in Silicon Valley. They were working at night after they finished their job. I had a guy that was doubling as a demo guy to demo the software to potential customers. And he was also a customer service guy, etc. So he ended up having to oversee this engineer in China because the two guys in Silicon Valley found this really cheap engineer that knew this niche database thing that we needed done in China. So then my guy in Toronto would babysit the guy in China overnight after they went to sleep and then submit what happened overnight to them. And it was this thing, it was very nocturnal way of developing it over the year.
0: Right, and personal life, you said at this point you were married and had kids? Yes. So I mean, how was all this balancing out? What was your work-life balance at this point?
1: It was imbalanced. It wasn't balanced enough, and I don't think it's okay. I did do it, it wasn't balanced. And I think in retrospect, I put way too much time and focus and energy into the business. And I should have been more focused on things at home. But again, that's completely hindsight is 2020 type of thing.
0: Right. How many hours were you working? What do you mean by that? I was
1: always working from when I would wake to very, very late at night. The myth that I told myself was, okay, if I'm around the kids and home, then I'm here. I'm at home. So I would not always be at the office. I'd physically be with the kids. But if I think back of one memory, I remember Sunday, it was at a park near the house we were living in at that time. I remember it was Canada Day. It's kind of like July 4th in the United States. Ours is July 1. So it's a big celebration all over Canada. So there's a big festival at a local park, and my kids are jumping around in this bouncy castle thing. And I'm watching them from behind a big tree because I'm on a development conference call guiding the development of the new platform. And in my mind, I thought, this is great. I'm doing both. I'm on my iPhone, guiding the call, listening in, but I'm still watching the kids bouncing around in a castle. But that is not the way to do it. In retrospect, I really wasn't actually there with them. I was there in body, but not there in spirit and mind.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of us can go through that, especially if your company was on fire, then, as far as in a good way, you're making a lot of money, then it becomes less of an issue, I think. Like maybe it's easier to detract, but especially when you're trying to save your company, it pushes us more away from that and into the business to make sure it actually ends up working. So, yes, I think a lot of us can kind of relate to that. Unfortunately, you know, there's never really a balance in life. It kind of goes back and forth to me or no human being has like every day is going to be perfectly eight hours of work, do whatever hours of sleep, whatever hours of play. I think just different parts of our lives that we focus more on one thing versus the other. So at least you can understand, I guess that ended up happening. Again, I think that's what happens to a lot of us as far as like the sacrifices we end up making to try to build an actual business. So we got the software developed and you're talking to these hospitals and the new contracts that they have to go through. Do you want to take us back to that transition, how those talks went? And again, are we year 2010, 2011 or so? Is that basically what year?
1: Yeah. And again, a running theme through our chat today, Austin, is And a question I'll get is like, okay, so you're rebuilding the product. How did you know what to rebuild? What I did was I took a bunch of Moleskin notebooks, started driving and flying, and started visiting the few hundred clients that we had. And I visited almost all of them over the course of three months. And I sat with the highest person. You know, sometimes it's the head of nursing. Sometimes it's the CEO of the hospital. And I'd sit with them for an hour and I'd say, what do you think of our company? And what do you think of our product? And they would say it's good. But if you're in business, that's a really bad answer because good means like you're just kind of okay, you're mediocre. So then I said, okay, so we're mediocre. What do we need to do to make you go from customer to fan? So they started giving me ideas in terms of what we needed to do to the product and what we needed to do to our customer service. I wrote all that down and that became the blueprint of how to rebuild a product, which we did. And it was the segue into the second phase after we rebuilt the product, did the migration, all of that. I realized that out of the hundreds of customers we had at that time, only three of them, to be honest, were referenceable. Meaning that when the salespeople would need to provide references, we would do the same me every time. So then we engaged in about an 18-month project to turn customers into fans in a consistent, predictable method. So we deploy different processes, hire different people to start enhancing the client experience. So that was also a journey building that piece out as well.
0: I thought you were just going to send them gift baskets.
1: No, gift baskets don't work. We did a lot of cool things. Like Again, healthcare for our sector, it's very traditional. There are people working in a hospital that have been there for 40 years or 30 years. And there are people that just got out of nursing school or medical school that are working there. So one thing we did is we realized that, okay, the software that we are deploying, it's actually considered quote unquote enterprise software, meaning that it's used by the janitorial and nutritional staff in the hospital right up to the CEO of the hospital. Everybody touches the software. So because it's enterprise software, we thought, why don't we do something kind of fun to make them remember us? So we did little things like every time we would sign up a new customer, within the first hour of them telling us on the phone, boom, you know what, we're going to go with you guys, send us the contract. Somebody would grab an iPad, go around to the team that would be working with this new customer, and they would film a quick 30-second video, and we would email it to them. So they would have this little video that said, hey, I'm so-and-so, you're going to be working with me. I'm so-and-so, I'm the project manager, boom, boom, boom. So that little touch point was nice. And then when we started taking them through how to set up and deploy the actual product, it would take us about 11 weeks to fully deploy the application, get them trained, all that stuff. So every time they would come across a different milestone, they would get it by FedEx, a little puzzle piece, because we would have sent them this special frame, which was like a two sided picture frame, if you will. And they would be instructed to put this little puzzle piece because they just accomplished a key milestone in deploying the software into the frame. And every time they hit a new milestone, they would get this puzzle piece, a new puzzle piece. And what they saw was along the way was this beautiful diagram of them completing the entire deployment of the software. But what was nice about it, it's two-sided because when they flipped over on the other side, there was a custom photo that the puzzle pieces would make of their hospital that was unbranded. So it didn't have our brand on it. And whenever I would go visit most of our clients, I would see somewhere in a boardroom or somewhere else, they would have that beautiful photo of their hospital hung up on the wall. And the psychology of something like that, and this is one of many things that we actually did, was whenever they would look at that photo, even though it didn't have our branding on it, what company would they think of? They would think of us.
0: Yeah, I mean, those are two excellent ideas. Any other tips? Because again, yeah, these little tips like I think maybe some people don't think of, but especially when you have high value clients where they're paying you a lot of money, doing these little things can make you stand out and again, make them become fans of your company where before you only had three. Now it sounds like you have a lot more.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So other things we did, we did something called the daily five. So the daily five is out of everyone that ended up working on the client success team, which is the new word these days for customer service, they would get a random five clients to call with two or three talking points for that particular week. So every day they're calling five and they're talking about that week's talking points. So the talking points could be, hey, this is so-and-so just calling to check in. Like, how are you guys doing? And by the way, is anybody going to the XYZ conference in a couple of weeks? And we noticed that you're using this part of the software, but did you know that you could also use this new feature that we released that you may not know about? So they were getting just like a personal, reliable human being just calling with a nice, useful check-in every 60 days or something like that. It would end up, they were getting a phone call. So that was another nice thing that we did. Another thing that we did is we ended up doing this thing called certifications. So we realized that there was no certification in the marketplace for hospital policy management and we had more and more competitors. So we thought, you know what might be cool? If we came up with an online test where people can take and a little course that would certify them in this type of software. So we ended up having our customers getting certified. We ended up having our competitors, clients getting certified because what they could post on their resume is, hey, I'm a nurse, but I'm also certified in how to use policy management applications, whether it's ours or our competitors.
0: And yeah, it sounds like great tips for anyone who has those kind of high net worth clients to make yourself stand out and get those fans. So we kind of fast forward to the end. Do you want to fast forward to, it seems like everything went well as far as those last maybe seven or eight years after you were in control and you had the new software and kind of talk about the sale of the company?
1: It wasn't always smooth sailing. There are lots of things along the way. Building out our inbound content marketing strategy was a real challenge. Our goal there was to become the Wikipedia of our space with lots of useful information. That was a big, big challenge. Hiring and recruiting reliably to get started. Talent was also a big, big challenge. Building the right culture in the company was a big challenge. And then for me personally, realizing that in order for this company to need to grow and to be taken seriously and potentially to be acquired, I had to cross the bridge. I view it as a bridge in my mind of on one side, I'm an entrepreneur. But then I got to cross over the bridge and become a CEO. It's two different things I realized. Because throughout most of it, I identified myself as an entrepreneur. And I said, ah, the hell with that corporate CEO stuff. I don't need to do all that nonsense. But actually, there's wisdom in that. So I had to learn how to become a CEO, how to create a proper board, how to run board meetings, how to have the company run under the corporate governance. Because those types of things actually help to increase your valuation exponentially when you want to sell or if you want to sell your actual company. To fast forward to the end, I had been wanting to leave the company for a few years, to be honest, maybe two to three years before the exit. And the reason is simply it had become too long for me. It was a 17 and a half year journey by the time I did leave. So around the 15 year mark, I started feeling like, okay, this has been a great education. It's been wonderful. But on one side, I personally want to leave and do something new with my life. And I think that the company can benefit from a new, fresh leader that's not me. So that could either come through me hiring a new president and CEO and kind of being the chairman of the board and guiding that person along the way and having them grow the company, or it could come from me finding a great home through an acquisition that can continue to grow the company. So I started exploring both. And we ended up going the exit acquisition route.
0: And so you just tell us of that experience as far as how that went.
1: It was brutal. <laughs> there are no books that tell you about this stuff. It was brutal in the sense that to anybody that's listening to this that sold a company or anybody that's dreaming about selling your company, just know that when you're running your company and then you decide to sell the company, you have now taken on a whole second business. So that becomes consuming completely the process of selling a company, especially a technology company. So it lasted about nine months, seven months of which were incredibly grueling. At the end of it, I had this enormous beard. I don't usually have a beard, but I just started trying to save as much time as possible because I just didn't have as much time. So I stopped shaving. The beard just ended up going longer and longer and longer. So yeah, the due diligence process is quite grueling. And we were actually very, very well organized. It wasn't like we were disorganized. We had what you call the data room, which is where you have all of your data organized and everything else like your contracts and all that stuff. We had all that organized ahead of time. So even our investment bankers, they were very surprised that, oh, wow, you guys are kind of ahead of the game. You know what to do. But the amount of questions that come up, you have to be prepared for that. And then the uncertainty that starts surfacing with the existing employees and the nervousness that goes through the ranks. I mean, that's also something that you have to accommodate for that nobody really prepares you for.
0: Right. Did everything go as planned as far as, I mean, obviously it was a grueling time, you said, but did you get the price you wanted and exit successfully?
1: Yeah. You know what? It's bittersweet. These days I do a lot of coaching, coaching and consulting and speaking. And a lot of people that I work with are CEOs and several of them have recently exited. And the day after they'll call me and you would think that they would say something like this, man, it's done. This is amazing. Let's go ahead and celebrate. But it's never like that. The person that went through it, it usually goes like this. Hey, man, it's done. (laughs) I'll talk to you. Right. And I understand where they're coming from. And I'll tell them, I said, go sleep, call me in a couple of weeks. And that's it. So. For us, the people that go through it, that know all the different variables, it's bittersweet because the broad strokes, to answer your question, yes, I more than got the price that I wanted. You know, a lot of those things I can't disclose because of endless papers that we've signed, right, with the private equity firms and everything else that acquired us. But we more than got the valuation that we wanted, the home that I wanted it to go to. It was the company I wanted it to go to. Everything was great. But then it's bittersweet because... In order to execute and make things happen along the way, you've got to make certain decisions, certain give and takes, right? So for example, I had to let certain people go because there were redundancies in the different acquirers. But on the flip side, I had to make certain decisions that were almost deal makers or deal breakers for me that the acquirer just couldn't understand. And so those types of things just kind of come up along the way.
0: Hopefully that helped. I feel like I came at least a little bit more helpful at the end there. No, I, I do. I think it helps. And like I said, it's like going to see a psychiatrist talking about your problems in life. You're like, we're talking with you about our <laughs> problems in business and startups. So, I mean, when we vocalize it and we talk, and something else will enter our brains and, and we're like, okay, yeah, there it is. Nice. Well, I appreciate it, Dr. Rock. You know, I'm still going to get paid, but I realize that if I make a twenty or $30,000 sale, I might only get 15000
1: me. I wish I had taught, wow, if I talked to you a year ago, because part of the reason I get suckered into salarying these people, they're like, I have to pay my bills. And I wish I had known about that. I can't believe no one's like ever said that to me because like that's how I should be structuring everything. So that's awesome. That's exactly what I should have been doing.
0: And so you sold it about a year ago. You said you do some coaching now. Like, So what has been post-selling like, in case any of us are lucky enough to be in this situation? Sounds like you're trying to figure out what you still want to do next.
1: Yeah, that's accurate. One thing that I did through the guidance of some mentors and also my wife, they advised me to take a year off, really to kind of heal and do nothing. So I did that. My year was up about a month ago and I will say that was super duper valuable. Anybody that can afford to do that, I would highly recommend they do that. In fact, I've met other colleagues along the way that have sold their businesses and they can more than afford to do it that didn't do it and they wish that they actually did it. And I can say that one thing that happened to me during the one year was I went from a human doing to a human being, which is just waking up and doing stuff, checking email, whatever, to transitioning into somebody that's just kind of like an actual human being that intuitively does what I want to do. But now that that year is up, I've started working with B2B founders, executives, CEOs, SaaS founders and CEOs, coaching them through. Usually what I coach them through, I found is the area that I have a lot of experience in, which is creating a revenue generation team. So that's really those phases that I told you about Austin, which is building out client success and then marketing and then the sales team and then putting in the right processes so they all work together to create that exponential revenue. That's what I've been doing. I've started doing some speeches and talks about that exact same topic. And I recently embarked on a scary project, which is writing a book about creating a revenue generation team that I'm hoping if all goes well I can maybe get it done by sometime next year.
0: And so I guess maybe if there is those type of businesses that could need your help, I mean, good way to kind of exit the interview. Is there a best way for them to reach you or do you have a website or anything that maybe they could learn more about what you do now?
1: Absolutely. So I'm a very private person, but I've been told from the people that I mentor and coach that hey, it'd be great if you can help more people because more people need to know about you. So I thought, well I'm not on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, but people can find me on LinkedIn and I've got a website about to be launched next week, actually.
0: Well yeah, don't say next week because it'll already be live. So ah, okay, your website's live now. What is it
1: called? It's uh S that's called S-A-U-D-J-U-M-A-N dot I O.
0: Okay. So yeah, they can visit you and learn more about you and your contact info. And so what are the types of people that you're kind of trying to help? You said the B2B businesses is a certain size or whatever. So maybe again, someone's listening now who owns a business and maybe they could use your help.
1: I would say that if you've got a team in place, I won't say the number of people, but if you've got designated teams in place for client success, for marketing, sales, and then the operations of the business, Financially, if you're doing at least $10,000 a month in monthly recurring revenue at bare minimum, that would be a fit. And really, I mean, those are the less important things that I look for. I have certain values that I look for when coaching people, and I can share those with you. I'm looking to see if they're coachable, to see if they're humble, to see if they are truthful, those three things, and to see if they're open to learning. If those four things are there, then I have a good feeling. If those things are not there, it doesn't matter how much money and how many employees the person has. I just won't be a good fit to actually coach them.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess you described everyone in our audience. So they're all good, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I appreciate you. I wasn't sure that's what you're up to today, but I mean, hearing your story, the last thing I want on this podcast is like people who are all about coaching or pushing courses of people who haven't been in the trenches. And obviously, like from your story, You actually being able to be there and sell a company and everything, it's a totally different perspective versus someone who's just a business coach and have never even run a business. So I think people can get that from your story. And hopefully, if anyone who's listening and might need some help, maybe they can just visit your website and find out a little bit more information and look you up on LinkedIn or, again, visit your website for more contact info.
1: Yeah, and absolutely. And my my purpose of coaching is really to be of service to as many people as possible. And I plan to do this for maybe two years until I possibly start another company. So it's what I want to do right now with my time to help as many people as possible until I decide to do something more, more permanent.
0: So, any last words of wisdom before we get off the call for anyone who's listening? Last words of wisdom I would say two things. Whatever you're
1: doing now in your life, make sure that's what you actually want to do. So take the time to quiet your mind down and listen to yourself because many times we kind of regurgitate what our parents and teachers have taught us over time. And we think that's we're doing what we want to do, but we're actually doing what they want us to do. And my only other thing that I'll mention, considering the audience that you have is don't chase money as your goal for career happiness because there's an author called Cal Newport in one of his books, he put it beautifully. Career happiness comes from finally being able to control your time. So if you can control your time, that's real career happiness. It's not accumulating endless sums of money.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us, Saad. Thanks, Austin. If you're looking for other tech-based interviews, then consider Episode 60 with Cam Duty. Episode 55 with Thorne Rodriguez, or episode 50 with Max and Pedro from Winding Tree.